The Acrest Podcast. Funds Industry Conversations. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to this episode of The Acrest Podcast with me, Danny Lawler. If you're new to the show, please do hit the subscribe button, and if you like what you hear, don't be afraid to share it with your pals too. For this episode of the Quest Podcast, I'm joined by a friend of the show, Jennifer Cahill of Savvy Recruitment Consultants. Jen drops in from time to time to keep us abreast of developments in the uh, labour market, I guess, in terms of the financial services industry in Ireland and investment funds industry in particular, and give us her sense for what's happening at the coalface when it comes to talent and recruitment. So in this episode, we catch up on where the marketplace is at, what demand is like and what supply is like. But we also chat more broadly about uh, the fitness and probity regime and the pending SEER, Senior Executive Accountability Regime, and the kinds of conversations she's having with candidates now as they ponder whether taking on a more senior role that carries these additional responsibilities is such a good idea and what they should get in return. We also chat about the approach to fitness and probity generally and the kind of very narrow skill sets that sometimes seem to be required both by employers and by the central bank and therefore tightening up the pool of available talent and what might be done to try and open that out. We also chat about talent and talent development and where the industry is going on that front. So with all of that ground to cover, let's get on with the show. The Acrest Podcast, Funds Industry Conversations. Hello Jennifer, it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me, Danny. Good to be back. So recruitment is your game, Jen. And within financial services, does it tend to be the funds industry or would you kind it's of... A good, it's a good blend, you know, across insurance, banking, funds is a big part of it, obviously, given the ecosystem that we're in in Dublin, um, but also like the consulting firm. So there is a good spread across all the different players there. And as you look across the market now, we, we, have, we catch up from time to time. And every time we catch up, the story is kind of the market is tight. There's more demand than supply. And then that obviously has an impact on the way that firms are recruiting and who they're able to recruit and how much they have to pay them and where they have to go to try and get the staff that they need. Is that situation any different? Is it better? Is it worse? Or, or how is it playing out at the moment? It's it's still very tight at the moment in terms of trying to get. It's always the key skill sets, whether it's compliance or risk or finance and company secretarial work. That's like can't find company secretaries for love nor money. So it's it's still very very tight and COVID. I suppose complicated things as well because now not only do you have those challenges of supply but now you have more varying degrees of sort of demands in terms of flexibility to work from home or to have a couple of days you know whatever it is there's I think a lot of companies are still trying to really kind of bottom out on that and even though a lot of companies say okay, here's our policy of say two or three days in the office there's still exceptions to that norm and they're still having to work around the fringes because some people have just maybe they're very senior maybe they're very you know an SME in what they do and they don't want to come to an office then companies are having to depending on the dynamic and whether they can find other people having to kind of work the market that way so that has been a complicating factor over and above just the supply of the pure skill set. And we wouldn't have seen that, obviously, pre-COVID. So it, it makes every conversation now much more nuanced than it used to be and definitely much more complicated, yeah. And I guess like what I'm seeing within firms is that whereas there would have been an awful lot of flexibility post-COVID in terms of where people worked from, that's starting to roll back now. And I think you're seeing firms ask more of staff to be in the office for 
you know, core days and, and probably three days a week. And then maybe more juniors required to be there more of the time, a little bit more yeah. for seniors. So um, if that's the trend and it's more back towards the office, I guess, then offering flexibility to incoming staff has to be balanced a bit against what you're what you're able to offer your existing staff so as not to rock the boat too much, I guess. Yeah, it's it's hard. It's really hard because again, particularly that junior, you know, people coming in needing to be trained. I think we all acknowledge that there's better training on the job, in the job when you're listening and you're sitting beside people with a lot more experience than there is trying to do that remotely. I think we'd all agree, but then that's the challenge trying to get the more experienced people to come in who are like, I don't really need to be in the office to do my job, but they need them in to do the training part of their job. And obviously in kind of the practices and the law firms, that's more relevant than it might be in other firms. So it is challenging. It's really challenging trying to marry that need of more junior people need to be in the office more and trained up and then trying to marry that with the more senior people to be there and trying to retain them as well. But you're right, a lot of firms particularly in the last six months, we've seen a push. A lot of the American firms looking for at least four, if not five days back in. Um, Mm. So again, actually now offering three days a week in the office and two days at home or any bit of hybrid is is starting now again to become a selling point because it's not that every job offers that kind of flexibility, which you're right, immediately post-COVID, there would have been absolute flexibility. Mm. And, And I think people let that ride out for like, you know, 2021, 2022, but it kind of began to kind of get a little bit more strict on us towards the end of 2022, or at least kind of late summer 2022. So it is challenging. There are companies that are losing people because they have become more rigid in in how often they want people in the office. So there are opportunities for firms who can still offer significant flexibility to attract talent. And I was only having that conversation with somebody yesterday where they were thinking, God, are we are we bad that we're only offering three days a week? you know, two days working from home. And I was like, actually, no, you're actually on the Mm. good side of what's available now with that offer. And outside of flexibility in terms of salary, is that that still a huge driver for what will motivate somebody? Look, obviously, there's cost of living crisis, inflation, you know, so that's the kind of macro. So yes, salary becomes, it's always important. I I don't think it's ever the reason somebody moves of its own. Like there's very few people in the last... I'd say 10 years in Ireland and financial services who were significantly underpaid. You know, there's there's anomalies where maybe people have been there historically an awful long time and they haven't got the increments that they might have got had they moved a couple of times. But by and large, most people are paid a kind of a fair market rate out there because there has been significant opportunity for you to go and seek it out elsewhere. So in that way, the market has probably operated pretty well. And we've kind of probably found our equilibrium from a from a wage perspective. It's always a challenge. People will always look for more to move. But I find Ireland in comparison to other locations like Luxembourg, for example, we're more measured now. So even in 21, 22, when there was loads of opportunities, people were looking at three, four offers potentially at a time. It was manic, you know, in terms of candidates having those options. We didn't see the same kind of rush to get aggressively into counter offer situations or to significantly overpay, knowingly overpay just to get a bum on a seat. Because I think there's a lot of companies that obviously got burnt doing that in the Celtic Tiger years and kind of saw the damage and, you know, trying to repair that over the, the subsequent years. So even though there was huge demand, I didn't see salary being the thing that companies wanted to get in and just compete on. You know, I saw yeah. lots of companies going, there has to be a bigger reason they want to come and work for us in terms of purpose or alignment of values and good work and challenging work. There has to be something else there to bring them in. and. If it's just five grand and there isn't anything 
pulling them enough on that other side, then maybe they're not the right people for us anyway, which I think is a, is a sensible way to do it because there's no point just throwing money at somebody. And I always think, look, at if you join somewhere just for the money, you'll be gone in six months because all the other things that actually make going to work a pleasure, in terms of the people you work with, the cultural fit, the value fit, the good work, that's actually what keeps you in a place. The money and the extra five grand, that diminishes in terms of the value once you're in the job if those other things are not right. And do you find that Irish firms have difficulty competing with uh, international uh, firms or, or, you know, offers coming in from London and, and other centres like that? Or do they hold their own well? No, our, like in comparison to London, there's no compar- Like for like lawyers, and we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, like recently qualified lawyers, I'm sorry, if they're looking for the money, they'll go to London. Like we can't compete in Ireland with the money that's been offered in, in a number, particularly the American firms apparently in London are throwing money at Irish recently qualified solicitors. So if that's, if they're just chasing the money, then London is absolutely the place to go. Another thing that COVID has done now, it's it's kind of because we locked up people in their 20s for three years and two and a half anyway. There's this, if you're looking for recently qualified accountants, recently qualified lawyers, anybody in that age group between kind of maybe 24 to 30, they're gone. They want off island. They're It's back to Canada, Australia, London, wherever it is. So it's a challenge for that cohort, for any business in Ireland that's looking to attract them, retain them and keep them. You know what I mean? You might get them for a year while they're saved to go traveling. But a lot yeah. of the people we would speak to in that age group, they want to get away for a couple of years. And I totally get that. That makes sense. Um, and I think COVID intensified that desire in a lot of that age group to just get off island. So that does make it hard for Irish firms for like legal skill sets or accounting skill sets where they're they're very transferable and you can travel very well with them. And London is always London and they'll always get paid. And, and Dublin's an expensive place to live. Like, obviously, that's not news to anybody. But when you when you look at the salaries of people in Dublin for what they're doing to get those salaries versus the cost of living to maintain themselves in Dublin, I would say they're probably better off in London. Like, you, yeah. it's a big ticket, but Dublin you go to London now, you're not shocked by what you're paying in London for most things. You know, day to day, like just to live, even rent and stuff, that's not a shock if you're coming from Dublin. So that's a problem for Dublin, you know, because we don't we don't have that premium that London has on wages anywhere. You know, people coming back from London, it's always a pill to swallow in terms of the salaries here. And there is a cap in Ireland on where the salaries go to. And there's sometimes a perception that, oh God, all these people are earning way over a hundred grand, but it's not the case. Like it's, it's tricky in Dublin to get things up into the hundred K plus. They're not 10 of any of those rules, you know? So yeah. it's it's a problem for, for Ireland generally and definitely Dublin as a financial services centre that we have this cap on wages, but we have a, a spiralling cost of living where actually places like London look like good value to be in. Yeah, and I guess that brings us then to talking about talent and the future and where does the talent come from to fill these roles and keep Ireland as a, you know, an important, vibrant financial services centre if the, you know, there is a, an effective market cap on salaries and lots of opportunities in other jurisdictions and, and, and an expensive cost of living in Ireland. Where does the talent come from, Jen? Yeah, so we've got to repurpose it. And I'm, I'm really, I, I, I would be, I have banged on this drum for a long time in terms of, you know, huge population in Ireland that have like really, really solid financial services experience, but potentially in areas like fund administration that have been dwindling in terms of numbers that have been employed in those industries and subsectors. And we saw it with Brexit and a real 
I suppose for me, a frustration at the lack of ability to look at transferable skills as opposed to just looking at experience. And I'm glad to see that government sponsored and, and the industry generally now is sort of doing a proper thorough review of skills and looking at skills and the transferability of skills and where there are gaps, what we need to do as an industry, as a country to support people to bridge those gaps. Because the answer is to use the really good people that we have here that either are jobs are moving offshore that they've done for 10, 15 years plus. So where do those people go? We have to repurpose. We have to use the talent that we have. And we have to be more lateral thinking in terms of where those people can work. And I, I always get really frustrated with, I want somebody to do this job and I want the person to have done this exact job in a direct competitor, please. And you're like, oh my God, that's such a stale pool. You know what I mean? It's yeah. That means that once you got in, you can't get out because people will only hire you for what you've done. So there's no opportunity for people to diversify and move out into different subsectors of financial services or it's really, really difficult for them to do it. But then you just end up with a really, really stale pool. And then you have those people demanding very high salaries because they know you're only going to fish in this pool. So I've thought for a long time that we need to think more broadly about people and what they're capable of doing and what they have the ability to do and what they have the skills to do that are not necessarily what they have done to date. And I'm glad to see as an industry we're looking at that now. I suspect that it's not just the financial services industry that struggles with looking laterally and, and only focusing on, as you said, people who have the experience and have done exactly what uh, you need them to do uh, and done that before. You see it in, in healthcare and other sectors that that's pretty much the mindset as well. So um, well, there's lots of examples where people get into roles because they know people and you know what I mean? They're given an opportunity and then they excel. But it, it's really frustrating that that's only open if you know somebody, you know, who will give you that opening because they can kind of vouch for you and go look at they'll work hard to get up to speed you know, they're smart, they have a good attitude, like they'll roll up their sleeves, they they will they will make themselves accountable to learn this role. And I, I genuinely believe in financial services. There's very little that smart people can't be taught or learn to do. Do you know what I mean? If they have good solid experience and they're in the broader kind of financial services industry, I genuinely believe there, there's not much that can't, if you invest in those people, that you can't teach them. Well, as they say, it's not rocket science. A lot of it, you know, if you have some nation and cop on and are willing to work hard, somebody will take the time to explain to yeah. you what it is. But yeah, lots of people can pick this up. Yeah. Uh, notwithstanding all the jargon and all the, the kind of layers that we wrap around it. Uh, <laughs> but that's all it is. It's just it's just a lot of jargon. So I was going to say, do you get a sense that there is a, you know, the determination necessary amongst those who need to be determined to push ahead with, Covering those skills gaps, having identified what they are and where the future needs are going to be and, and how we need to repurpose to actually take action to, to make that yeah, happen. Yeah, no, there has been. no, And, that, and the, the problem has been the, the, the motivation on the candidate side has been there for a long time. And people would often ask us, like, what courses should I do? And I want to transfer into this and I've identified this course. And, you know, and they would ask us really sincerely going, if I did that course, would that get me in? And I have to say to them, honestly, no, because that's the problem. right? Because yes. if you go off, because you're still judging the experience. So if I present somebody who, regardless of the experience, but they've done these bridging courses, like to try and learn about a new area or whatever it is and try and get up to speed, like say they're coming from banking. So that's probably where we've seen the, the greatest kind of mass redundancies in banking and credit kind of backgrounds and look and going, OK, well, funds is a lot bigger now than banking in Dublin has been. So or <laughs> under extreme difficulty, could you transfer from banking into funds because you don't have any funds experience? And no matter how many courses they do in funds or funds related or to learn the thing they will still find it incredibly diff- difficult if nigh impossible 
to break into the funds industry, which I think is just an absolute shame. So the motivation has been there, Danny, on the candidate side. But I have always said to people, you can do it, but I don't want you putting your hopes on when you come out of that, regardless of what mark you might get or whatever else, that alone is not going to get you into the industry. You've got to know somebody who's going to get you that in. So the motivation is there. It's just that the appetite hasn't been there on the employer side. And even in places where it's really, really tight and they can't find the people they're looking for, the appetite still wasn't there to be a bit more pragmatic about what they, they would consider. So I think, again, coming back to the industry as a whole now, looking at this, it's a long time coming and it's well overdue. And I guess part of that has got to be, you know, the central bank and, and the fitness and probity rate, yeah. you know, to be able to understand that somebody can come in and be fit and proper without being able to take all of the boxes that one would expect in the road profile and that it will maybe take them time to, to get fully up to speed, but yeah. they could still be fit and proper and, and suitable for the role. But I, I genuinely believe, and I do think the central bank are, have a part to play in this because the, the fitness and property for me, again, is far too linear. You know what I mean? Again, have they done exactly this job in exactly like, you know, so narrowly focused in terms of, you know, the product that states an asset manager, the product that they're actually trading in, have they, experience of that exact product somewhere like geez that's like a tiny pool but like where's the diversity of thought in there where's the diversity of experience you know so in one voice the central bank are you know big proponents of, of diversity and i just think well you're not really encouraging diversity of thought or experience in the way that you're running fitness and property i get it i get that we all want a more robust financial services industry with proper safeguards in place for investors but i would argue that that's not the way or you need to broaden how you consider somebody fit and proper that's not just based on the experience that they've had in exactly those kind of product areas because again going back to what i said i genuinely don't believe it's rocket science and smart people can learn those things it's more about you know particularly around rigor and challenge and can you challenge a board and can you do all those sort of things there's a lot of kind of personal attributes yeah experience you could have gained elsewhere that would give you the ability to challenge and even if you don't know, sometimes the person who doesn't know asks the right questions. They're not afraid to ask the questions that nobody else will ask because they think, oh, God, I should know this. So sometimes having somebody around the table who doesn't know or ha- hasn't worked in this is actually maybe the best person to have around the table because they'll ask all the stupid questions that maybe some other people feel they can't ask. Well, my experience with fitness and probably helping clients as they work through it is that it's there, there's definitely a, a patchiness to it, I find, an inconsistency in that. Mm. Sometimes somebody will be presented and will sail through and they won't get any questions. And then sometimes another person will be presented and will end up withdrawing an application because it's clear that the central bank isn't going to clear them through the process. And you you look at the individuals involved and you wonder how was A, you know, able to get through with no questions and B, couldn't get through at all. Because to my mind, you know, they're both of the same quality and standing. And actually, sometimes B is better than A in terms of their, you know, what they can bring to a role. But if mm. uh, if that if if the kind of exact there isn't an exactness between what they've done and what they know versus what the role is, sometimes you know there's not an awful lot of appetite on on the regulator side to facilitate. It's a patchiness that kind of it's pa- it, and but it is great. I just think there's there's a real lack of transparency around the fit. And like, there's obviously things the central bank will know, and maybe there's a history of somebody working somewhere before and we don't know about it and was never public or whatever so that is at play and obviously that shouldn't be made public or whatever but I think when I speak to people like you say where they're going I didn't like I got called back for a second interview which is pretty much saying that you're not going to get the green light you know what I mean so they withdraw and that's the right thing to do so you don't have to say you're ever not accepted for a role but 
I think the lack of transparency for me is an issue in terms of that process. Um, and as you said, that patchiness, because it does make people nervous then about going, will I even bother? You know what I mean? Or if I don't yeah. have that direct, I just think in a way, in some ways they, they seem to be very prescriptive on it. But as you said, there can be patchiness. And for me, a little bit more transparency would actually be good for the industry about if you don't have this direct experience in this area, these are the other areas that we would potentially consider, depending on the individual, but just to make it a little bit more transparent as to what their expectations are. Yeah, I, I agree. I think if they amongst themselves and amongst their own thinking have an expectation of a certain amount of years in a discipline before they would consider somebody fit and proper it would be useful if the world knew that yeah but also i feel you're right like when it comes to the second interview i i don't know how open uh those second interviews are in terms of how open the regulator's mind is that this actually could be the right person and a second interview might get them over the line then but it's just a point, risk yeah, they're not going to, they're not, yeah. And look, I think that's the problem. They, I agree wholeheartedly, obviously, we all do with the purpose and what the centre back are there and the function that they have and what they're trying, what, you know, what the aim of fitness and probity in the interviews is. Absolutely, that's all great. But I just think we've gone too far in the extreme where we're actually probably in a lot of instances preventing good people who are not from, maybe it's banking, transferring across or whatever it might be just and it's putting people off and they're kind of going there's no point me going through with the company a two three stage maybe four stage interview process to then get to the final hurdle and be told no you know and again even for recruiters and what we do and even for clients they're so risk averse normally when they come that they think that they can only look at the you know people who've done exactly the same job before and sometimes because there is that scaremongering out there it's a challenge to get them to try and consider something a little bit broader yeah i think you're right i think maybe now that we have a few years experience of the fitness and probity regime, a little bit like what's intended with individual accountability, that it could be a good time to look at what works well, what doesn't work so well, and what can be done to make the whole uh, system work better. Because I think that that serves everybody. It serves the central bank and the purpose that they have for the regime. And it assists firms then with understanding, you know, because in the first instance, it's for them to clear somebody as being fit and proper before they yeah. them to central bank and understanding, are we getting this, are we getting our bit right before we even go down the route of uh, an application to central bank, or we put somebody's four yeah. stage interview process and, and all of that time. Because you could think, they'll go to London, and we were talking about other centres, like, and that's where I would see it. Is people go to London, they get into roles much easier to transfer yeah. across, and and there seems to be an ability in that market to look at transferability of skill sets. They're just more conditioned. I don't know what the background is to it, but certainly I would find that really good candidates that I would have known going back 10 plus years ago you know when I got into recruitment when it was very tight and there was very little on offer for jobs and people getting made redundant who went to London they went into really interesting things you know they got really interesting opportunities that they just would not have been given the opportunity to do here in Dublin and I just think that's a shame why are we exporting all these people and again they're getting approval by the FCA to do certain you know things that again I'm not sure the CBI would approve them to do so I don't understand and that's, I think, very Irish sometimes that we'll only export it. <laughs> and then when somebody else accepts it, we'll take it back into our own fold, you know. But I just think that's a shame. And you mentioned individual accountability there a moment ago. Obviously, the senior executive accountability regime has been in the offing for, for a while. It's it's uh, getting more towards the finishing line on it. Is it something that comes up in conversations that you have with clients as they look to recruit or with individuals as they look at roles and wonder about what this means for me and is it you know is it worth the risk that they're being asked to take on i know sears isn't quite here yet and it only applies to certain sectors but, but notwithstanding 
Yeah, and I think, as you said, because this has been there for a number of years and everybody's obviously, with even pre-COVID, we were talking about this and obviously it's just now coming with the COVID delay. So my sense is that a lot of people have kind of nearly, even though it's not fully in, have factored it in. Do you know what I mean? That, you know, we're so, we're, most people are very familiar with the UK system where they've either, either worked in the UK or they're working for a firm where, you know, the senior manager's regime has applied. So they're familiar with the kind of, you know, what it's probably going to look and feel like. And we've had a number of years to kind of get under the skin of it. I met a few people a, week, a few weeks ago at a conference and a couple of compliance people. And they were certainly of the attitude that it would change their perception or it has changed their perception of the attractiveness of a PCF role or even a control function role and definitely made them more, not wary, but you definitely more taken in a lot more consideration into where you would go and work in that kind of capacity. So I think even though we've got used to it, we're probably, there's no probably big shocks coming in terms of what it will entail. And we're kind of used to talking about it and used to understand it and have a good grip on it, even though it's not fully enforced. But I think it does. I think, and I've been saying that to clients for a long time, it, it just that individual accountability side of things, you know, the grey that was here before and it's not going to be there now and the cover and the collective that isn't going to be there anymore. It does change. That is that is a, a gear change. And again, coming back to the premiums in Dublin, there isn't those premiums in Dublin to necessarily accept the danger money, if you like, to take on those roles. So it, that has changed. I have certainly seen a huge change in the attractiveness of PCF roles in the last seven, eight years from being something that people definitely aim for in a career as a risk or compliance professional, that that's where they wanted to go and they wouldn't have taken a role that didn't have the PCF title, even if it was head of compliance, but for whatever reason didn't have PCF, they wouldn't have taken it because it was really important to them to have that. Whereas it's very different now where people would say to me, like the number two is well paid and I don't have any of that exposure and I'm actually okay with that. Yeah, and I think even that in a way, is a win for the SEER regime and for the central bank. You know, even the fact that individuals are thinking more seriously about whether they want to take on the role, what it involves, how they would be supported, whether this is the right firm for them, or asking these questions of the firm so that the firm has to think about these things before they will be able to, you know, be successful in a recruitment campaign. Uh, all of that is is actually really what SEER is about. I know, you know, the, there's a change to some of the rules and participation rule and the ability to sanction and that'll get all of the headlines there won't be that much of sanctioning hopefully it's really this bit it's this shift in mindset and culture towards being cautious and careful and, and you know understanding what you're putting yourself forward for and making sure then that you're supported and the business is well run and really seriously taking into account it's, it's our regulatory obligations and acting in the best interests of its clients all of that stuff that's really what serious about and if that's happening in the conversations that you're having even six or seven months out from the start of the year and a few years out from when it will apply to the funds industry. That's all good stuff, I think, if you're if you're the regulator. I don't know. Look, I would agree with you to a degree there, but I do think it depends on the risk appetite of somebody. But I do think some, sometimes the people who are happy to take on the risk are the, really the wrong people <laughs> should take on the risk. And it, it comes down to sort of the risk appetite. And I'm generalizing, but risk and compliance people tend to be pretty risk averse. So I don't know is the answer I, I would say to that. I don't know if maybe some of the good eggs are put off just because they're overly, overly conscientious or overly risk averse. And the ones who put their hands up and are perfectly happy with it, maybe they're not the right ones. I don't know, but I I don't, in my opinion, I don't know if it would be as clear cut as that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess we will we will see how it plays we'll out. See. But I, I do think you're right though in terms of it's probably more generally 
there's plenty of years of experience with it now. The centre-back clearly has expectations around things like skill sets and levels of experience for certain roles. It would be useful if we could see that in kind of some form of guidance or Q&As or where, however the regulator mm. publish it or, you know, evidence of good practices, that kind of stuff. So that yeah. we're, we're all closer to the mark. We understand what it is and candidates understand what it is and, and, and you avoid the stress and hassle and, and waste of everybody's time if you have somebody yeah. who you think is good but who isn't going to meet the regulator's expectations. Last question on my side, Jen. I just wonder, are you seeing uh, demand for skill sets and roles that uh, you wouldn't have seen so much in the past? I think it may be around cybersecurity, I guess, technology-type, CIO-type roles. Yeah, no, there's a, there's a huge drive around the two areas that you mentioned, cyber and and the, the tech side in terms of building out IT capabilities in-house, in firms, to deal with, you know, it just it, it's just everybody's role and the technology that companies are needing to use to be much more efficient, to, you know what I mean, to do what they do cheaper or better or more efficiently. It, it's inevitably much more tech dependent. So everybody obviously needs to be more tech savvy in that respect, but then you're going to need greater tech resources and probably di- like different, not just your IT support, but actually kind of very strategic tech people, you know, systems people. And then cyber is massive, you know what I mean? As a, as a, specialism in and of itself and the risk associates of cyber risk and IT risk and that's been around for for a number of years now but again very difficult skill sets to get because it's not like we were producing particularly IT risk or cyber risk professionals for a long time so it's a very niche area still and we still don't probably have enough people in those areas and with those specialisms but yeah it's a huge area and even any role I would say that we're recruiting for now the ability to be sort of tech savvy is is massively important irrespective of the role that you're going into in an organization and that's a challenge you know because some of us aren't some of us aren't but I think definitely and we see that even from the CBI talking about you know even the boards and boards having those that advise it around cybersecurity and people who can challenge IT risk in particular um, is really really important so we've certainly seen that drive in the industry to to recruit those skill sets and have more of those people in yeah. the organizations. I guess it's natural enough, but certainly a bigger part of the conversation. And I think when I think at board level, I guess the current focus when it comes to diversity is, is more around gender and gender balance on boards. And I think in due course, that will kind of have worked its way through. And I think the next focus for diversity will be around skills diversity. And I think that will mean some form of tech and cyber expertise on the board, as opposed to the support from the in-house function or whatever it is or however boards are supported at the moment i wouldn't be surprised if years down the line they, they look to have their own inet who is an expert in cyber and tech yeah, uh, as yeah. one of the skills that they look to put on the board definitely this is probably the one skill that is lacking on boards because again historically just hasn't been a focus there hasn't it hasn't been as big as a risk as it is today to every business so i would say yeah it's the one probably you could point to every board and say there's probably a gap there but outside of that, Jen, the future's all rosy, I guess. There's... <laughs> yeah. yeah, sorry, if I'm being negative. No, the future is all rosy. It, look, in general, it, the, the market is much more moderate this year than it has been for the last two years. You know, we're not seeing that frenzy of people with multiple offers, but it's still good. There's still lots of demand out there, lots of opportunity for people. And I'm glad to see as an industry, as I said, looking to repurpose people and, you know, use the, the really excellent people that we have here to build for the next phase and what financial services will look like in the next sort of 20, 30 years. So look at it, it's great and it's great to be back out post-COVID and meeting people and 
just there's a real vibrancy out there, you know, in the industry, which is brilliant. And a lot of, you know, cross pollination. And there's obviously a lot of tech startups, you know, uh, fintech startups in particular in Ireland as well. So it's great. I think the ecosystem has broadened. It's diversified in terms of the players that are in it than would have been 10 years ago. And I think that's massively positive. Uh, and on that happy note, Jen, thank you very much for joining us. <laughs> always great to have you here and get your insights on, on what's happening at the cold face with the recruitment and talent. Thanks for having me, Danny. Good to chat to you. Great. And on that note, we wrap up the show. Catch us next time. The Equest Podcast. The Equest Podcast. Funds industry conversations.